nation to equivalent of what was then Korea, Pyongyang, and is now North Korea, uh, was that great revival. And we saw that actually it had, been, it had been stirred in large part because people heard about the revival back in Wales happening just three years earlier. Took about three years for that uh, 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 news to really spread across the world. But anyway, we'll get there. To study the, the story of um, the Welsh revival of 1904 is, is very little more than studying the life of Evan Roberts. Uh, he was the man that God used and, and uniquely anointed to bring about the, the revival that happened in Wales at the time. He grew up, uh, well, he was born on June 8th, 19, 1978. It's not likely. 1878, that looks more, more right. He was, a, he was a young lad in a, in a strict, tightly taught, sound, Calvinistic Methodist church. So he was a well-taught, well-catechized little man. And he grew up to become, uh, by the age of 12, he entered the the coal mines, the area of Wales that he lived was a, was a mining town. So almost all the gents were, were uh, with a hardy, burly, hardened, burly, burly fellows that worked uh, in the depths of the coal mine. Uh, and he had to go and work at the age of 12 in the coal mine because his father uh, 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 received a horrible injury while he was working and the family was going broke. So at the age of 12, Evan Roberts went down into the coal mines, but it was known that he always loved and always prayed for revival. His day was a day of, of cold orthodoxy and a lot of, of, of Calvinistic nominalism. Everybody, most people went to church. At least every family would call themselves Christian. It was definitely, definitely a Christian nation, but in terms of how many people were truly in Jesus Christ, were truly born again, the number was woefully low. There was a story. Uh, he used to carry his Bible with him when he went down into the coal mines. Sometimes he would work with it underneath his arm. Other times he would keep it on a sack on his back. Sometimes he would just leave it in the coal mine uh, near his, near his, uh, his, his uh, little food, food bag. But uh, there was one time that there was a, uh, uh, they were running out of the, 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 the mine because there was news that there was going to be an explosion. Things were giving way. And he was running out, and on his, his way out, he, he was caught by the blast, and his Bible was thrown from his hand and became seared, and it landed open to Second Chronicles chapter 6, which was one of his favorite chapters. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 6. Is this young man, I think 14, 16 at the time, went and, went and read it. Uh, this is in context. Solomon has just finished building the temple for God in Jerusalem that David was promised his son Solomon would build. And Solomon had, I mean, the, the, the accounts of the temple are truly amazing. You just can't imagine how beautiful and glorious it would have been. And yet Solomon is, is filled with, um, uh, with, uh, with, with, with sadness, really, as he looks at the comparison of this and what God truly, truly deserves. But in uh, uh, verse 13, go to chapter 6, verse 13. Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and he had set it in the court, and then he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. This is one of the, the key markers of, of Evan's life is that he desired and strained to be somebody who could say, every portion of my life is given to God. He was, he was passionate. He was committed. He wanted to be a man who could with good conscience say to God, as much of myself as I am in control of, I have given to the Lord God. 
he, he would constantly call on God. Uh, from bent knee with his arms stretched out was his favorite uh, a position to be praying from. And he's praying to God as a faithful God. Like Solomon, there's nothing in the gold and the wood of the temple that means that, that would obligate God in any sense to come down and fill it. It was the most amazing thing ever seen to man. It was a preposterously insulting thing to God. And so he says down in, in verse 18, But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. That was much of the prayer of Evan Roberts, was there's no hope in our prayer. There's nothing about our church, our nation, our people, or myself that can ever call on God to come and bless me in and of ourselves. And yet, because he's the steadfast, covenant-keeping God, of whom there is no one like in heaven or earth, we can pray to him and expect genuine answers. So he goes on to say, uh, uh, Solomon goes on to say in verse 19, yet, this, this temple is not more worthy or able to contain you than the highest heavens, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name. That's what he's calling on. He's calling on God's promises, not the worthiness of the temple. So that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So please listen in your grace. And when you listen, hear our prayers. And in your hearing, please forgive. And then he goes on and prays all sorts of different situations. When, when we're in famine and we call and you hear, please forgive and bless us. If somebody is in sin and he comes to you and prays to you, may you hear him and forgive him and then bless him. If we as a nation are, are attacked by another army, please, and we pray to you, please hear us and forgive us and then bless us. And if the foreigner comes and if the people come, and, and so all these different examples are, and in Second Chronicles 7, you see God send down fire and, and, and anoint the holy place and enter it with a promise that if my people pray, I will turn to them and hear and forgive and bless their land. Well, it's that, that kind of a, a chapter really marked Evan Roberts. And when he was of age, he went down, to, uh, he went down south, I believe it was to Newcastle, where he set, uh, yes, Newcastle Grammar School, where he, he studied in order to set his life towards the ministry. He wanted to become a Calvinistic Methodist preacher. People who knew him said that every portion of his life seemed to be, a, at every waking moment, a preparation for the gospel ministry. He was always praying, always evangelizing, always reading, carrying around his little, his fire-seared uh, Bible under his arm. And he went down to the, uh, 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 to the Methodist denominational uh, study place uh, where he was uh, studying. And he was, he was an avid student. And they said that he worked day and night. He did his normal studies, plus all sorts of extra studies that kept his evenings full. And, uh, and he would go to the church for their midweek meetings as often as he possibly could. And yet he was, he was, he was grieved with many others that there were so many not in the church. He said that the Christianity of Wales at the time was an abysmal failure. And so he would pray for the revival. And there was a gentleman by the name of Seth Joshua. 
And he was an evangelistic preacher, and he actually came to Newcastle, the town that, 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 that Evan Roberts' uh, uh, study was going on in. And, and Seth Joshua came to that town, and he was holding uh, revival missions, revival nights or, or, or evangelistic nights. They didn't call it revival nights back then. They, they knew that, that they were Calvinists. They knew that that's the work of God to do, not, not man. The Spirit doesn't come just because you call it a revival meeting. Uh, uh, and anyway, so Seth Joshua is holding these, and, and they were, um, uh, th- 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 there's these stories of his nights that he would go. He, he was, they were relatively small. The revival hadn't broken out and wouldn't break out under Seth Joshua. The revivalist would break out under Seth Joshua. It was Evan Roberts who was going to be changed under the preaching of Seth Joshua, but the revival itself didn't break. And yet, they, though they had small groups, they did have powerful meetings, and they were filled with singing and with praying, and Seth Joshua would preach for, for, for a couple of hours, and then he would, he would get towards, you know, 8 p.m., 10 p.m., 11 p.m., and he would, he would tell the people, because after the preaching, like we do, they, they, would, they would pray, but they wouldn't go into groups. They would all just stand and pray from their pews. And he kept on uh, saying, uh, 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 as somebody would, would pray they would, and say amen, they would break out into song, and they would sing, and, and he said, you know, uh, family, thank, he said four or five times at, at, at this meeting, he accounts as saying, thank you so much for the prayers and the, and, 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 and the coming out, but it's, it's almost evening, remember, uh, sorry, it's almost midnight, remember, there's always tomorrow, we'll be here tomorrow, so let's say an amen, and so they sung their, their final um, amen hymn, and then somebody else would jump up and pray, and then and they would be praying for 10 minutes, and then everyone would jump back into song, and he would say again, there's always tomorrow, it's 11 p.m., let's let's go home, amen, and, and, and then somebody else jumped up and started singing, and then he said, guys, it's 12.30 now, at the end of that, he says, it's 12.30, let's all go home, and, a, and an old woman stood up on a, on a, I don't know, a walking frame, what they would have had back then, and she said, it's already tomorrow, pastor. <laughs> We may as well continue, and so he did. But there was, there was this hunger. There was an eagerness to be praying and praying that God would revive his church. Wales is, is in, but to some people, known as the land of revivals. They, they receive, they, there's, there's all sorts of revivals throughout history, not least the 1859 revival, not even 100 years before this account. <coughs> but Evan Roberts was visiting one of Mr. Joshua's meetings, and he was impressed by the strong powerful, biblical, Christ-centered, cross-focused preaching of Seth Joshua. The, 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 uh, but though that was powerful to Evan, and though people were praying in zeal, the, the, the campaign continued on to the next town without any apparent outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There was not a great breakout. People were not swept into the kingdom. There was not repentance and faith. But as Joshua prayed, Seth Joshua would, would, would pray this phrase. He, he would say, bend us, O Lord as if the people themselves, especially the church, had become stiff and had become hardened and had become unbendable and inflexible and disobedient to the Holy Spirit. And so part of what he was praying was, God, break off the outer shell of our orthodoxy and, and, and nominalism and truly bend us before your throne, bend our knees, bend our hearts so that we are obedient from the soul and not just in a cold, outward, religious way. And this prayer destroyed the soul of young Evan Roberts. He heard that prayer, bend us, O Lord, and he was, he was broken on the inside. He, he literally collapsed in the pew that he was sitting at. He collapsed and threw his arms over the pew. And for, for, for hours, he was sitting there while other people were praying and singing and praying. He longed to pray. He was trying to pray, but he couldn't. And all he was doing was sweating profu- profusely as he stuck on his knees. He could not move himself but was simply caught in that way until the end of the evening, and then they went home. And there was no outpouring. 
There was no salvations, but Evan rose from his knees, an entirely new man. He went back to, his, to the college, of course, and he was unable to study. He could, he could almost not get 10 minutes through the studying of the books and the, edu- and the material that he needed to be, able to be able to do his studies. He was frustrated by it, but what he found he could do, he had always been a little bit dyslexic in his singing, but he found that he could just sing for hours and hours at a time now at home, and he didn't want to sing so much as he wanted to study, but, but then again, he didn't really want to study, he just wanted to sing and pray. This doesn't seem like a real Calvinistic thing to do, right? You crack out a book. You don't, don't, don't crack out a hymn and, and pray on your knees for hours. And yet that's all he could find himself doing. The pastor at the church that he was attending noted a sharp change and he was now burning with zeal. He says in his diaries that all he could do all day as long as he could control himself was soul travailing prayer for an outpouring over Wales. He had a vision that a revival would come down and touch Wales and spread over the, all the ends of the earth. Now, I think as, an, as a 1900s Calvinist, he would think about that as, as cockeyed as we would when we hear that. Well, visions, I don't know. I, that, 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 let's back up a little bit, Evan. Make sure you, you test that. And, and he did, but that was what he was, he was gripped by. And he, was, he, was, he had this prayer burned into his heart. Can we ask God for 100,000 souls? And he prayed with his, school, with his uh, uh, roommate that God would give to them in Wales 100,000 souls to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the, in the months that followed, he, he accounts for th- about three months. And this is one of the marks of, of the 1905 Welsh Revival. Right? If you ever go, and go to a reform bookstore and ask, where's all the great books about the 1904 Welsh Revivals? There's not many. There's a lot of criticisms. Because there was a lot of, of, of spiritual and claimed and some false and some genuine uh, matters of visions and revival and, and, and glorious and extraordinary things. And this was one of them. He had months, Evan Roberts, months where he felt in his morning devotions as he would pray for hours at a time, he was, he was in a trance. He would be removed from his, from his body and he would, he, it says as if he was face to face with God in, in the sense in which he was praying. And of course, he, he didn't claim to have seen God face to face. And somebody asked him, well, were you dreaming? Is this happening? And he says, no, this is, this is next to my bed. This is in my body. These are the visions that I'm having. He was a man of devoted prayers. He kept on going to the church meetings uh, uh, in his little town while he was trying to study at, at the college. And he had this vision of all of his school friends back when he was at school, all in this little chapel. Who, who all would have been about his age, young adults, 16 to 22 or so, uh, all, and they were all lining the pews and filling the pews that he went to school with, all these people, and he was up on the stage preaching. And he was asking God to just get rid of this, this desire for, for preeminence and this desire to preach. Oh, I don't want it does, it's not about me, God, please remove this vision. And he just kept on having it. And he saw many of them saved and calling on Jesus for salvation. And he went and sat down with his principal and said, is this from the devil? Or is this vision from God? And the principal said, well, I'm not the guy. Yet. Like, way to go and put all of that on me, by the way. But I'm not sure I can say either way. What I do know is that the devil doesn't inspire men to preach the cross. And so, as if he was compelled by the Holy Spirit, he decided to stop all of his additional studies for, so that he would have all these evenings free and become an evangelist. And he went back home. He went back home for one week in order to preach as the vision had compelled him to his old schoolmates. And so he went and he asked his elders if he could hold a service where he would preach. And they say, fine, you can do it since you're 
a seminary student and all, but you can do a, a short meeting after the prayer meeting on Monday night. And what we'll tell you, it'll just be the young people. That's what they said. It'll just be the young people, and it'll be after the main service, and everybody else, people can just stay if they want or go if they want. He was happy with that. Only about 17 or 18 people stayed behind, these young adults who he'd gone to school with to listen. And as he preached, he gave them a few steps. Steps that if you follow, we can be that much closer to walking out, outside of this cold orthodoxy and nominalism and truly walking with the Spirit. He said, first of all, know yourself to be a sinner and trust the, that Jesus Christ has died for you. Tremendous first step. <clears throat> Secondly, confess to God any sin that you know of in your life. Thirdly, obey the Holy Spirit promptly, no matter how little the thing seems. If you feel the Holy Spirit pushing you to do an act of obedience, no matter how silly, do not quench it, but obey. And fourthly, confess faith in Jesus Christ publicly and to your friends. As he gave them those steps, he was also speaking all about his own experience that he'd had. But how he'd come out of, the, out of a, out of a mere, mere coldness and into this fervency of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and praying for revival. And the more he spoke about the reviving work God had done in his heart, people, the hours slipped by unnoticed. And it was the early hours of the morning before any of them uh, 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 started to realize. For hours, he was preaching, and tears rolled down the cheeks of the people who were sitting there listening. They sang their psalms. They, they stood up and prayed together. And people who, who had been so embarrassed of their faith in Christ would stand up and profess it publicly and ask for prayer and offer prayer of confession. It was an amazing warm night. Then they went home. They came back the next evening and did it on the Tuesday. In fact, it happened every night they did that and prayed this way and had little bits of preaching and lots of praying and singing every night of the week up until the Friday night. And then the minister asked him if he could stick around for another week and he could have a service after the Sunday evening service. And so he decided, I won't go back to my studies. I'll just stay one more week and do all of this. And that next week was the week that the 1904 revival broke out. The first, deliver the first address that he preached to his uh, in fulfillment of that vision was October 31st, 1904. Reformation Day, 1904. He preached then, and it was the following Monday that things started to explode. He, uh, he held the, the prayer meeting, and he would get up and he would preach, preach a short while, and then it would, it would be open for confessional prayer and singing, and the city was alive with new life. By the time that this next week had come around, enough people had heard about these meetings with the young people that everybody wanted to come, and it was open to everybody now. And even the minister started telling people to go because he's not just some upstart seminary student who wants to preach to the youngins, but he's, he's promoting that people come and listen to this young man who preaches Christ. And people from all parts of the town were turning up in the meetings. There was, there was hundreds of them that were, and thousands of them that were pushing out the walls of the church and lining the streets as well. And they would sit and stand and pray and sing for hours and hours and hours. The entire town was abuzz. But remember, this is a coal mining town. Hard, burly, swearing, hardened sinners. That's what these blokes were like. And all of these cold miners were talking about the services down in their coal mines and getting converted as each of them are talking about what happened. And, and it was says that there, was, there were chain reactions. You'd send down two Christians among a men of 100 and you'd get back 50 at the end of the day. And they were going down and often coming out of the, the mouths of the coal mine would be these glorious Welsh hymns being sung down there as all the Christians and, and those who knew would be singing as they worked. It was as if the land itself was singing praises to its God. 
and the, the most hardened sinners were converted. The, the amount of, of people with horrible backgrounds who were converted to the Lord Jesus, listening and coming and praying and singing was amazing. But it wasn't just Evan Roberts' church. It was, in fact, growing with such, and this is one of the key markers of this, this revival, is that it would just spread without any seeming human involvement. It would just spread all over the place like a wildfire had been caught by a huge, huge wind and was being taken over Wales. In every church of the town, those ministers started holding prayer meetings and they were packed and filled to their limit as well. All over the town, and in fact, not just over the town, but all over Wales. As people would come and visit and then go visit home and they would carry that fire of revival or, or people would, would go to the next town to go and start preaching, uh, uh, Evan Roberts and his brother and another man, Sydney, they started traveling up and down Wales, going from town to town to town, just holding prayer meetings, song and psalm and hymning, hymns meetings and people were being drawn and any land they went through for the, for the next months and year, they, they, every church in the area was filled to overflowing with new converts and with people. <clears throat> Some of the most amazing effects were felt in the town, especially in those early few weeks in that small town, and then it started spreading all over Wales as the newspapers started to get a hold of it and start publishing that there seems to be a, a religious revival under this young man, Evan Roberts, over in the portion that he was preaching in. The changes were lasting and permanent. Many of the men who had been committing all kinds of family violence and neglect to their wives and their children turned into loving, repentant, sorry husbands. The miners became hard, harder workers when they became Christians, and so they were even better at their job. It used to be said that, that the women would have to wrestle their husbands on payday, when they would get their pay each fortnight, the women would have to wrestle the check off of their husbands so that they could run to the store and get some groceries before the husband flew into the pub and spent all of their money on liquor. It was a horrible, horrible state of affairs, and yet bankruptcy started occurring all over the town. But not in the homes of the people in the houses, but bankruptcy as all of the, as all of the pubs and the bars started having to declare defaults on their loans because they didn't have any customers. The pubs were entirely empty. They couldn't sell their alcohol. People were now sober. It's like, it's like what happened in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, when, when the, when the idol, uh, idol smiths and the silversmiths start complaining because, because Paul's gospel is taking away all of their customers. The judges, the town judges, were put out of a job. They were all put on permanent leave until further notice because there was no cases to try. There was one case. Uh, it's... It's a beautiful story. Uh, we've just sung, to finish off our singing, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. That is called the love song of the Welsh revival of 1904. It was, uh, they would sing unaccompanied uh, with those beautiful Welsh accents, and, and there was this, uh, uh, it really became uh, uh, the, the love song because in the early weeks, a young woman by the name Annie Davis, uh, Annie Davies, stood up, uh, she was, I think, a 17-year-old gal, and she started singing to, to, to start off the, the meeting one night. She stood up, a, a young, beautiful, fair-skinned girl, and started singing in a beautiful Welsh language, Here is love, vast as the ocean. And dozens of burly coal miner men who had come just out of interest's sake fell on their knees at the back, collapsed in the front, and sat down in their pews with tears rolling down their eyes as she just sung to their souls. And there's this time in um, one of the judges who was trying a case, one of the very few cases that were ever on, he, um, 
he, he, he was sitting there up, up in the judge's seat and he took his wig off and he put his gavel down and he said, son, I will soon speak to you. He, he, he'd embezzled money or stolen somebody out of something. He's, I will soon speak to you as a judge representing the state. But in this moment, I want to speak to you as a Christian. And he compelled him that though he was, a, he was a criminal against the Lord, he was really a sinner and a criminal against God. And he had done what this judge cannot do, which is give the punishment to his son. He explained the gospel to him, and the sinner got converted on the spot. And the jury burst out singing, here is love, because they were all Christians. And so it became a mini church service, and, and, and the judge threw it out because the man promised to make good on whatever he owed and saw that it became so. The other songs that were so core to this revival that were going wherever the revival was going is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, with the ones that we sang tonight. There's, there's others, but those ones were so key. The cold, dead orthodoxy and nominalism was breaking to pieces as the Spirit uh, swept across Wales. In fact, one of the marks of this revival is that, well, it was particularly a mark about Evan Roberts and things that followed on after him, is that they didn't have order of services. He would actually not walk in and have a, have a set sermon and then, and then, and then put a, a lot of time to go and have prayers and we'll come back for a song. It was, just, it was just given over, he would say, to the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. And so he would even be asked before we're about to start, he would be asked, what, what are you going to be preaching on? And he said, I have no clue. I don't get in the way of the Holy Spirit. I allow him to decide when I get up there. And for a guy who's, who's raised Calvinist, knows his Bible, has done all of his study, he doesn't need to pretend to throw some dots together. He can get up and extol Christ and ex exhort people to trust on him in, 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 on a whim. And so the Spirit did that. He also, we said they didn't have any order of services. Preaching was actually very, very minimal in this revival. One of the negatives of the revival is there wasn't a lot of preaching. It was actually mostly praying and singing, and it was the truth of the hymns which were catching people in their souls so much. Evan Roberts wouldn't tell people where he would go as well. He would just travel to a place, walk into the church. They were having a revival meeting, a prayer meeting. He would get up and give a few words. And One time he said just one word in the Welsh, which is three words in English. He just stood up and said, let us pray. And that was it. That's all he had to do. He went down praying. They went down praying. And the night was off. And people were, were extolling God and praying for all sorts of things. He said that at, at different times, everybody would just pray together. Not a practice we planned for, but it happened in the revival. And, 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 and you would hear all these people praying for different things. There was one story of a, of, a, of a son who was unconverted and annoyed by the whole revival. And he was alone in the pub in the town. And he was sitting there across from the publican and he's, he's talking to him. And, and, and the publican tells him, he goes, you know, you're awful quiet now and you haven't touched your drink. He says, I, I know I can't. He says, what do you mean? Don't give me this conversion silliness. You know, you've paid for it. Drink your drink. And he says, my hand is frozen to the table. I cannot lift it to take a drink. He was unable to move. He went, the, the, the night goes on and he ends up walking down to the church and going in where he, he, held his, he found his father on his knees crying, Father, keep my son's hand from the cup. Keep my son's hand from the cup. Keep my hand, son's hand from the cup. And he, and he held him up and said, Dad, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. And took of the cup of living water. There was a story of a... Uh, <clears throat> Of, a, of a, uh, one of the, in another town that was, that was do, doing, doing meetings and, and a bloke from out of Wales came in to get a report on the situation and he asked the guy, the minister, he goes, how many nights a week are you doing these prayer meetings? And he said, we, we don't do prayer meetings in the evenings. People bash down the door of the church and you just, you just got to get them to their pews. That's, that's what happens. He goes, and how long do these last? And he goes, somewhere, but they usually start about six 
and then about midnight. And he goes, six hours every night. He goes, no, 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 no. No, 6 a.m. until midnight, they give us just those portions of time to go home and sleep. There are people in there for 18 hours a day. He says, no, well, there's some people in there, but, but the, the miners come in before they start their shift, and then the, the mothers and the children come in, and then the bankers come in at close time, then the, the miners come back in in the afternoon, and then the town is filling all of the churches right down the street until beyond midnight. <clears throat> and this was reported to be going on in every town of Wales. One of the gentlemen who came in who was writing for one of the periodicals wanted to get an accurate account of what was being told because all sorts of magnificent stories were spreading across the nation, uh, across the, the British Isles. And he says, uh, writing to, to back to his periodical, he declared in all seriousness that he could find no trace of the devil in Wales at the present time. He says, there are few, if any, parallels with this mighty outpouring of religious fervor bringing a whole nation to its knees at the foot of the cross in adoration and in praise. There's this one time, as we were saying, Evans would just turn up places and preach and, and then go to the next place. And he came, came to one church. They weren't expecting him, but he, he walked up and he asked if he could take the pulpit. They said, yes, please. And he, he came up and he said, we, we believe the Bible, right? You're, you're, the, you're, you're the crowd in this story, okay? We believe the Bible, right? We, we know that it is the word of Jesus and true in every word, amen? And, and, and you know that Jesus said, where there is even two or three among us, here Jesus is, amen? So then he said, church, do you really believe that Christ is in our midst right now? And they all said, yes. And he says, then you don't need me. And he closed his Bible and left, and they had one of the most powerful prayer meetings they've, they've ever had. He would just turn up place to place and preach, uh, Sometimes preach, often pray, and so it spread. But, but we said before that one of the marks of this revival was just the way it exploded. In fact, exploded in a way that was, uh, that was a fulfillment of, of Evan's vision that he would have, that, that God would bless Wales and through Wales the whole world. While it is the Welsh revival, as Welsh people traveled, because there was a, it, was a, it was a poor time and the... the uh, uh, you know, 10 years before the, second, the First World War. But it was a poor time, especially in Wales. Many people were moving out of the city, and as they went, they carried the, the, the revival fire. There was Welsh people all over the world, and as they got letters from their family back home, so they would start praying for revival, and it would kick off there. So, so the, the, it started in Wales, and it moved northeast and hit the Midlands of England. It hit Ireland. It moved across the channel to Norway. In Norway, there, it is, it, it, they, they actually brought into Parliament um, uh, a, a special rule that Lutheran laymen, and not just Lutheran clergy, but Lutheran laymen were allowed to give the rites of, sac of, of, um, of, uh, of the Lord's Supper because there was not enough clergy being trained fast enough to be able to handle all of the people coming to the Lord's table. Went to Norway, it went to Denmark, it went across to Sweden, and uh, sometimes it was being carried by Welsh people, sometimes it was people would visit and take it back, sometimes they would just hear about it and pray for the revival to come to them as well. It happened in France, uh, revival broke out in Germany, it broke out among the Welsh in India. The Welsh in India in about 1906 re received revival as their families were writing to them and they prayed and it says that the, the Christian population boomed for the next five years at a period of 16 times the amount as the Buddhists were growing. Sorry, the Hindus were growing. So it went to India and right near India is where Pyongyang heard about it. And it was the missionaries in Pyongyang that had that holy 
covetousness, that holy envy for revival that had just happened over in India. And it was in Pyongyang that there, in 1907, that, their, that that revival continued on. It's, it's really just Wales 2.0. But additionally, it went to China, it went to South Africa, it went to Australia and New Zealand, it, it spread to Brazil, though there was Welsh in Canada, and churches there broke out in great revival, having to bring all sorts of people in. It went to USA, and in Pennsylvania, usually you can open up your, you know, generation before ours, and maybe some people still use it, you know, you, you crack open your, your newspaper to see what people have died in your town in the last day or week or so, and, and, and they, they actually scratched the death toll in the newspaper, not because people weren't dying, they just didn't seem to care as much, and put into it the account of all of the conversions yesterday. And they would have pages of people being converted each day in the town paper in Pennsylvania as a follow-on from what was going on in Wales. So as we close and we wrap up at this amazing and glorious revival, I think there's, a, there's at least a couple of things that we can take. And that is to not be like Evan Roberts, to not be afraid of an obedience to the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. I think that there is much to be said about the quenching of the Holy Spirit because we're afraid of abuse or misuse in spirituality. I know a bunch of us have come from places that are, that are further down the, the charismatic stream of, 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 of churches and we, we're, we, we don't want to follow into the error, but instead of being careful of the error and wise of the error, we become afraid of the error. Error is really not that hard to deal with. If things go wrong, and we, we, we usually get too careful, too, too scared so that we start to quench, and, and we go, we can't go down there so, so I won't be obedient to sovereign impressions. I, I won't, uh, I won't give, give ear to the things that God's putting on my heart to pray for or people to go and talk to and things like this. And, 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 and I remember uh, one time I was at a university uh, outreach down on the Gold Coast. Um, we were staying down there for a week, and, and it was given to excess. Uh, we would have our late-night prayer meetings and... And, and I was a good little Calvinist boy, and I, I didn't love jumping down into the, you know, the, the things that I thought weren't all that wise. But, but, there, but, but really, if we're not afraid of, of the damaging excesses, but we're just aware of them, it's pretty easy to deal with. There was one guy who, who fell down on the ground, well, didn't hop down on the ground, and one of the least mature guys there. He was at Bible college and really wanted to make a name for himself. And, and he, um, he, he started coughing and wrenching like he had a demon inside of him. But this is obviously a show. This guy's just trying to steal some of the, you know, we're singing a great cross-centered song here, and here he is trying to manifest in, in the midway. And then, and then he moved forward a bit where more people could see him and sat down and started turning again. And I just walked up to him and said, hey, mate, can you at least, can you get exercised over on the pew? And he was deeply offended. He looked up at me, moved across, sat back down and kept on going. <laughs> and that's usually how easy it is. I mean, if, if, if we're afraid of excesses, we, we won't even give ourselves to obedience. When I say this, like, I think like Evan Roberts, as a careful, catechized, biblical, theological, sound Calvinist. But we must not be afraid of excesses so that we, so that we quench the spirit. Rather, be aware of them and don't do them. Don't give room for them. Don't give air to them. But don't, in fear, quench anything that the spirit would do that is other than an exposition. On the other hand... What we can learn from, the, from, from this is, the, is where, where the priority for preaching ought to take place. We know that the, what the Spirit blesses is the truth. And one of the things that was so powerful about the Welsh Revival is people would just be singing and people getting converted like dominoes as they walk in through the door because the songs were so gospel-rich. 
And yet we know, and to, to, to power on the, uh, uh, to keep revival and spiritual growth going, it ought to be buttressed, strengthened, fed by the word of God, explained and applied. So in closing, let us strive, as Spurgeon said, that we can see no great increase in religious things until we see the prayer meetings fill. I praise God that every prayer meeting this year so far, we've seen nearly double the people come each time. We're praising God for that. Can you pray with me now as we, as we close out this time over the 1904 revival and take our, our spots in our groups to pray? Father God, we are struck by the power and the sovereignty of your grace through the gospel and how amazingly you can work when there is somebody who desires and follows you with all of their heart. And we pray, Lord God, that though we may not take the, the physical stance, but that our heart would always be in the, the position of Solomon, on our knees in front of you, arms stretched out, knowing that there is nothing in us that would command your blessing. We simply call on you for your faithfulness to your promises. Because what we can learn from the Welsh revival is that you are always able at any moment to bring about magnificent and immediate change. And Lord God, we just think how many times we have missed chances or how many times we have quenched the spirit or seen people uh, not, not meet you through our, through our words or, or not, things not being answered through our prayers simply because we were afraid of excess. Father God, would you please make us as afraid of quenching the spirit and afraid of missing out on a reviving work as we are afraid of excess and errors. Father God, please give to us a hunger, not just for, for, for the growth of a church, not just for an excitement, not just for an event, but Lord God, would you make us hunger for Jesus to receive what he is worthy of, the nations, the souls in the nations. Father God, we pray also that you would bring to our homeland in Australia reformation in the church, revival in the church, and revival amongst all of our loved ones who are outside of Christ. We are yet to see such a sweeping, amazing revival. And God, in humility, because of only your faithfulness, we ask that we might be that generation that sees the gospel proclaimed and people saved through the, the precious and gracious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please hear our prayers now as we pray over the ministry of this church and as we pray for each other in our needs. And would you give to us a humble heart that comes to you as Solomon did. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.